Today's episode of the Eater Upsell is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Oh man, I am a very big fan of this company and its products. If you're someone who has true dietary restrictions like celiac disease and you need a 100% safe gluten-free option, it can be hard to find a brand that you trust. But that's where the OG of gluten-free, Bob's Red Mill, comes in. This is a company that's been making gluten-free, organic, and stone-ground products for decades. Now, I don't have celiac disease, and I am not a gluten-free eater, but I have usually got some type of Bob's Red Mill product in my house. Right now, it's Bob's flaxseed meal, which was part of a delicious banana bread that I had for breakfast. Bob's Red Mill is offering an exclusive deal to our amazing Eater Upsell listeners right now. Use the promo code EATER for 20% off all products at bobsredmill.com. So you can stock up on gluten-free products from oats to flours and meals that are all processed in a 100% gluten-free facility to ensure zero cross-contamination. So head to bobsredmill.com to shop and explore their huge range of products and get inspiration from hundreds of recipes. And don't forget to use that promo code EATER for 20% off. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. I'm Daniel Janine. I am here with Amanda Clute. Hi there. Hi, Clute. Can, we, can I call you Clute? Is that cool? Uh, like sure. thoughts on that? Uh, it's like pushing it a little bit, right? I mean, it's a little cash. We're here another six months and then you can call me Clute. Really? Yeah. It's just such a good last name. It's, it, it works. It works. Everyone in high school used to call me Janine. Do you like that? You want me to call you Janine? I don't care. I'm glad we've established this here and now. Yeah, great. This is another best of episode where we do a fantastic job of condensing two of our favorite episodes into 20 minute micro episodes for you to get the full flavor without the full time commitment. That brings a question to mind for yeah, me. Go ahead. Do you listen to podcasts at one and a half speed? Okay. I'm conflicted about saying this because I don't want to... Because if our listeners listen at one and a half speed, it's even shorter. I'm conflicted because I, I do, but mm-hmm. like I also appreciate the... But you don't want to be public about it? <laughs> I don't want to be public about it. Uh-huh. Actually, I don't know. But I just like, I, I know as someone that puts them together, I know that the musical aspect is like something that takes time. Yeah. So I feel like when you listen to them at one and a half and two times speed, the music, you're like, oh, there's a musical track underneath. You're not as... You're not appreciating the composition. Right, right. No, that's a good point. I don't appreciate that. But, um, yeah, I do. I listen to them fast. It's funny. I was talking to our CEO, Jim Bankoff, about podcasts and the speeds at which we listen to them. Good thing these mics are clipped down so you can't drop it. Uh, Just no big deal. We talk. Uh, And he... Hi, Jim. I've never met you. (laughs) He, He was saying sometimes he'll listen to them at twice the speed... Jose Andres is a good example of someone who he listened to at twice the speed, which what? was surprising to me because he yeah. does have that thick accent, but apparently he speaks uh, slowly and clearly when he's being recorded on a podcast. Wow. Shouts to Jose Andres just from little, Jim Bankoff. Just a little fun fact. <laughs> so on today's Best of TV episode, we are starting with um, Carla Hall, who... Are you kind of buddies with Carla Hall? I wish I could say we were buddies. Yeah. <laughs> we're definitely not buddies. You've been in the same we've, room we've a fair definitely, amount. We've been in the same room a few times. Mm-hmm. We uh, co-hosted an event together, so we got to meet through that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of hers because she is so cool and honest. So and wait, just who is real. Carla Hall? Carla Hall is a TV host, mm-hmm. former restaurateur, uh, but food business person. Yeah. Uh, came from catering. Came from catering, opened a restaurant. That unfortunately didn't work out, um, but I'm sure she'll be a future restaurateur. She yeah. hosts The Chew, is most famous for that right now, and mm-hmm. was big on Top Chef for big on two, Top Chef. two seasons. I used to be a, a huge Top Chef junkie, mm-hmm. and the first time I saw Carla Hall on Top Chef, 
she just has a she has a, a serious presence. And, yeah, and she's got it. The second she walked on, and she had one of those little what are they called in reality TV? The cameos or the like off to the side when the person's confessional. Speak, the confessional. I was like, oh, we have another we have another person. In we've the, got a star, yeah, baby. Yeah, we've got a star. <laughs> I like probably look to my slices of cheddar cheese with rice crackers in Canada. Wow. Yeah, that, I eat that every really, day. Really, really brings us there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to localize. Yeah, so we have Carla Hall, and she, uh, on this episode, talks about some issues she had with the producers, or with kind of grounding herself in the world of the Chew when she was starting off. I also like how she talks honestly about how she went to Top Chef and why she did that, because oftentimes with reality TV, you wonder, like, what is going on yeah. in these people's heads? Are they that desperate? Right. And her talking about how it was hard to monetize what she was doing, and that's why she did it. Mm-hmm. And she was reluctant to go back the second time. Yeah. Actually, this is one of my favorite ones for sure. She's uh, she's electric. And, you know, when I saw her in the studio, I was like, that's the star I saw. <laughs> Day one, Top Chef. You didn't I was freak like, her someone out, get you? my rice crackers and cheese. <laughs> Just going to sit back. <laughs> so let's uh, let's listen to it. Carla, you're the one of the many hosts of The Chew on ABC. How many of you guys are there now? They're like five. 11? Oh. Uh, they're 11. Oh, my God. Sometimes they're 11. Actually, on our 1,000th episode, they were like, I think, uh, 40. No. Hold uh, up. 1,000 episodes? We celebrated 1,000 episodes yesterday. It's been five years, so we're in our fifth season, and it's crazy. And and I think all the... So it's Michael Simon, Clinton Kelly, Daphne Oz, and Mario Battaglia, myself. And um, we, we became really fast friends, and I think think that's the secret to our longevity is that that we are really friends. And yesterday, you know, we're celebrating our 1000th and we come out and, you know, and the audience is only friends and family. And right when we walk out, we just got really teary. It was it was really emotional and I didn't expect it. In certain type of types of work environments, mm-hmm. you form these incredible bonds, yeah. you know, and I think like we work in journalism, one of the most beleaguered professions in the world and you wind up becoming family with the people you work with because like you're fighting the same fight together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I imagine it's kind of the same thing yeah maybe like less of the threat of constant industry collapse when you're on a tv show but no no but no but exactly that because the shows don't last I mean you had the revolution come and go um the fab life is on but it's going to go and um you know you had uh, Katie Couric and, you know, Meredith Vieira and all of these, they're great shows and great hosts, but they don't, you know, TV is really hard and we didn't think we were going to last. And that first frenetic week of the shows, well, oh my God. And you know, like Clinton Kelly tells the story. Okay. He calls his agent. This is not going to last. Can you look for the next thing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the idea of the two is very audacious when it was announced, Mm -hmm. like this idea of it's a daily hour long show that's cooking segments, but it's also a talk show. And it was like this really interesting zeitgeisty hybrid of morning TV and food TV. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for those of us on the outside, especially like people like Greg and I who chronicle the world of food, like you look at that with a little bit of a raised eyebrow, right? Right. Because I think we're always a little skeptical of things outside of food culture, slapping the word food on it Mm -hmm. in order to seem cool because Mm -hmm. food has become so cool. And so we're like, oh, great. Like they added the word food to a morning show. Right. But then it worked. Right. It worked. It's, and it's really great. about food. Yeah. And, and the whole thing is food, life and fun. And I, and I think the unique thing about the show is that we get to have celebrities on home cooks as well, but we get to have celebrities on 
and you get to see them cook. You get to see how they are in the kitchen. There's no other show who can put them in this environment, really. So you get to see another side of people that you wouldn't normally see. This is what I wonder about The Chew. I mean, it seems to have as many moving parts as like a late night show, like The Tonight Show. Yes. And it moves fast. There's always a ton of stuff. And in the midst of all this cooking, yes. you know, which I know is not easy for Correct. television. So after doing a thousand episodes, is it like a challenge? Is it, is it a, you have to stay really focused on it every day or do you guys get into a groove with it? And it's like, okay, here I am. I'm doing this thing again. You know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of all of that. And I'll tell you why we come in on my, just to think of interesting things constantly. I mean, think about we, we, in this at 1000 shows, there were 327 pasta recipes that Mario did, but 47 of them were macaroni and cheese. Not that Mario did, but that we did right in the 1000 shows. So sometimes we are like, Oh my gosh, how are we going to make it new? What are we going to talk about? You, You know, and that becomes very challenging. And, and, and also, you know, I do Southern comfort food, baking, Michael does meat, Midwestern, Mario does Italian, and Clinton does sort of entertaining, and Daphne does the, the healthy, you know, side of things. But the thing is, I, I want to be out of that. I don't want to have to do Southern food all the time. I mean, there's, there's a big world out there. And I think this season in particular, we came back and we said, look, let's, let's really teach, you know, cuisines of the world. We are not just these one-dimensional people or cooks. So that's been really fun. And, and also, there is power in what we do. And if there are millions of people watching, like on the Food Network, right, they, they don't do fish. And I really think they don't do a lot of fish. And I think that's why people are uncomfortable with fish for as long as the Food Network has been on. And it's so many amazing shows. But I think we're like, let's do more fish to make people more comfortable. There was a, a story that we ran on Eater a couple of years ago about this organization in Washington, D.C. called D.C. Central Kitchen. Yes. And um, our reporter told this very moving account of a speech that you gave at one of the graduation classes mm-hmm. where you talked about sort of grappling with those categories that the producers may have put you into. And, mm-hmm. and you told this like very, I thought, very candid and very powerful anecdote about feeling angry when Michael Simon was assigned to do a segment with Gladys Knight. Right. And you felt like, you know, that should have been yours. Right. Um, so have you, how has that evolved for you? I think um, it was, it was very, and I, I talk about that story a lot and I talk about my challenges in life because I, I'm very candid and open about sharing them. And it's because if I share mine, somebody else will learn from my, from, from my challenges. And that one, that one was really hard. And I think, um, it was basically Gladys Knight came on, cooked with Michael. And I mean, it's not like he wanted to cook with Michael. The producers put him with, with Michael and, and they made a smothered chicken dish. So I was like, oh, snap, that I, 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 I was, I was like, wait, what? And when I went into her dressing room just to meet her before the show, all of her people were like, oh my God, um, Gladys was so excited to come on the show. She loves you. She watches the show every day and I wasn't cooking with her. And I, and, and Gladys Knight is from my generation and I'm 52. So listening to her, I mean, you know, my heroes from the South. And so I, I was like, wow. And I, and I went, I called the meeting with the producers and some other things had happened prior to that. So that was kind of like the straw. And I, and I believe that frustration is the ability to do work. If you are frustrated enough, you will move somewhere. 
Right. Okay. So, um, so the, the, the way that I moved, I called a meeting with the producers and I, and I said, look, um, there, there are either two, two things are wrong with this. Either you didn't think about me cooking with her and that's a problem because you didn't think that I would want to cook with her or you didn't have me cook with her because there's a problem with my interviewing and, and I am not up to snuff. And that's, that's your report card because you have not helped me get there. So either way, this is your report card and you're failing. And that this, this was my perspective. And I, and I, and I just went on and on and on. And I, and it was at a time when we were, Daphne and I were told that, oh my God, I, I'm probably going to get fired for this. But, <laughs> you know, uh, we'll bleep out the next 10 seconds know. or whatever. You said. Uh, no, but it, it was it, it was this whole thing of, you know, we weren't growing as quickly as the guys. Oh. And and I was like, wow. But, you know, it's like you set us up for really great backup singers. And so I was like, you know, when you go to a show and that person is at the center of the stage, do you know who the backup singers are, what they love to do, who their parents are? You don't know them, but they 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 basically heightened that person. They back up that person so that they can look good at the center of the stage. And we didn't feel that we were put at the center of the stage. Now, this was probably a year and a half ago. And looking back now, it was my lesson. I had to get to the point where I was frustrated enough to move into my authenticity. And when I look back at those segments, I I wasn't as good as I could be, but they weren't I didn't feel like they were helping me get there. So once I got what I call the, the screw it's, I use another word. We can uh, say it on here. But, oh, okay. You, know. I, I, you have to get the fuck it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so in that meeting, I said everything that I wanted to say, because I knew that I didn't want to go home, wish I had said something else. And I said, if I get fired, that's okay. But I'm going to go out being me and telling you exactly how I feel. And they looked at me and they were like, okay. All right, here she is. Thank you for showing up. And it was crazy. Were you nervous going into that meeting? Were you like, this is this is a big? I wasn't nervous. I was mad. Yeah. I I was mad, and I and I and I remember crying, and I didn't care. I didn't care about being that woman who was crying. I mean, and so often people are thinking, I don't want to be, I don't want to be perceived as this. I didn't care. I had the fuck it. I was like, I'm going to go in. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel and we'll see where the chips fall. And, and so many people are afraid to do that. But at the end of that, I got to me, I got to who I was and they actually appreciated it. That is, yeah. I mean, I feel like when you cross that, like the fuck it cliff, it's just, everything becomes clear. Yes. You know exactly what's happening. The world kind of goes into slow motion. Yes. You're like, I know who I am. I know who I want. So how did your experience change since then? So, um, after that, I, I actually started doing more pieces. And and the thing was, I wasn't good enough because I didn't get to practice. You know, if you're on the bench at a game and you know, they're like, well, you're not good enough. I'm never going to get good enough because I can't practice. And so they allowed me to practice more. And then, you know, and they're like, well, why are you so good? I said, cause I got to practice. Well, yeah, when I first read the the list of, you know, all the participants of the chew, I was like, Mario Vitale and Michael Simon have been doing this for a decade, yeah. at least. Right. You know, Carla and Daphne and Clinton, you know. I Clinton was like, Kelly had are- been on, so, right. Yeah, but you came out of reality TV, right. which is so different. Night and day. It is so incredibly different. And yes, and to your point, you're right, we had three people who had done television, and um, Daphne and I had not. And so we did um, uh, media training, 
uh, starting the I want to say the third season, which was which was great. And actually, the the one thing that um, the woman said to me, she said, first of all, media training is about becoming the best you you can be, and secondly, when you're looking into that camera, I want you to talk to your next employer. I was like, what? And and honestly, for some people, it would be. You know, you would be cut off at the knees, like, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired. For me, it was like, all right, if I'm talking to my next employee, I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm Carla Hall, and you may want to hire me. That's <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. That's genius advice. That's amazing. Every job's an interview for your next job. Wow. That's that's, that's this is a like sage. Very deep. Yeah. This is blowing it's my mind right now. It's almost as profound as, as getting the fuckets and having to do something. Oh, no, you know? like this is good. This is like you're like career counseling us right now. Let's keep going. Like I have feelings about my mother. Can we talk about that? Yeah, right. Okay, I just saw the meddler last night. Was <laughs> it good? It was so good. I love Susan yeah, Sarandon. I so. love Susan Sarandon and I love Rose Byrne and J.K. Simmons. I love them all. J.K. Simmons weirdly looks exactly like my actual father. Really? Which is very bizarre. And whenever he's on TV, whenever he's on a commercial, whenever I see him in a movie, it's very difficult for me to separate them out. And I developed deep emotional attachments to, which, you know, made, um, what was that movie where he was physically abusive towards the drummer? Oh, oh Whiplash. That was hard for me to watch. Oh, right. <laughs> like, of course. Oh, you're no. like, daddy, why are you being so mean? Why are you doing this, daddy? So I first learned about <laughs> who you are, Carla, and what you're all about watching Top Chef. Yeah. And now here we are five years down the road. The Chew is huge. And you're a huge, like, personality on that show. And you're doing so much. I mean, do you feel like you're like way more famous than you were five years ago? I mean, I, I, I guess I am from you all's perspective, but for me, I'm the same person. I mean, I, I take the subway. I talk to people. I still take Uber pool. <laughs> you you take like, Uber pool? Yes. Do people in your Uber pool recognize you as a celebrity and freak out? No, you know what I do? And actually I look up there because their names are on there and I'll get in. I'm like, oh, hey, Ashley. And they're like, you know me? I'm like, you know, your name is, is actually on my pool. You turn the tables on them. I, I do. You're like, oh my God, are you Ashley? Right. That's exactly what I do. You know, and then I don't want to say anything. <laughs> and then right before they get out of the car, they're like, by the way, I'm a fan. And then they scurry away. Was there a moment where you realized you were famous? I think it was the moment when I had done, actually I had done Top Chef the first season. So season five and I'm in New York. It's really cold. I have a I have a coat on. I have a scarf up to my neck around my face. My glasses are poking out. I have on a hat. And somebody says, Carla. I look at them like, are you kidding me? Can you tell who I am? And it's the glasses and, and my height. And um, so and I, and I and also when people say hootie who and I'm thinking it's a friend, you know, and I'm like, turn around like who? Like W.H.O. instead of H.O.O. And <laughs> like, who who are you? <laughs> like, it's amazing that you have a catchphrase. Yes. I think I mean, it's catchphrases are less popular than they were in an earlier era, mm -hmm. I think. And yours came about so organically. I remember watching that episode of, of your first season that you were on Top Chef and you're in the grocery store and like there was the, and you know, then it cuts to you sort of doing the, the confessionals to the camera and you're explaining that this is the thing you and your husband do. Right. And I was sitting with some friends and we turned to each other and we were like, oh shit, it's a catchphrase. Like <laughs> it was so exciting to have another catchphrase mm -hmm. in our lives. It's, you know, my husband and I have a lot of them and we, we, we crack ourselves up. We don't have to crack other people up, but, um, so we do a lot of, even when we come home, it's like, hootie, who, you know, you know, it's like, it goes on. Like so the secret languages of couples, yes, you know, yes. which is beautiful and intimate. Mm -hmm. And then like you turned it into this national phenomenon. Yes. Yes. And I respond to it. 
<laughs> How did you feel watching yourself on Top Chef, you know, for the first time? I mean, it had obviously been taped months before it came out. Right. It was it was weird. It was um and I watched with my friends. I watched with my husband and um so people would say, Carla, I can't believe you went on television and you were your weird self. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I do. It, it was it was really weird. Also, it was hard to watch. And I remembered the stress. I think the stress never goes away, even when you're watching and you and you know what what the outcome is. But you're like still watching like you're in it. You know what I mean? And, and I and I swear I had post-traumatic stress after the show because I. When I came home, and I didn't tell my husband anything because they were it was um, uh, a gag clause, and so and those a, are like a million dollars. Yeah, and like, I was like, mm, okay, that's not worth it. I'll, I'll shut up. I don't have a million dollars, you know, <laughs> no biggie. So uh, I didn't tell him anything. I came, I came home, and I went. He was in Michigan, and I slept. I must have slept for a week. And if there was any noise in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh my god, time's up. I, I would have this thing, and I and I run. I still run through grocery stores, you know. So. Um, you know, I, it, it affected me greatly. Yes, it did. It's, it's, it's tough. That show is very tough. But you went back for a second season. Oh, girl, after saying no a few times. So what made you decide to do that? Uh, you know what, what made me decide to do it? Because I, I did say no. It took, a, it took like three phone calls and I was like, I don't want to do it. Um, that being said, I'm very grateful to the Top Chef uh, franchise, but I, I went back because I hated catering, and I think I think being on the show initially made my life really hard with people coming to because I don't have a restaurant, so anything any jobs that I got I was physically doing it was really hard. It was st- my life was still really hard, and you're working, and, and just because you're on television doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden rich and have all of these resources. I, I had none, and it was all on me, and I'm trying to do other things. And they said, well, what if you make it part of your business plan? And I know a lot of people go on the show thinking, what, how far can this get my career? I did not. I I just went on as a personal challenge. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go on and tell people I don't cater. That really was the only reason I went on. I'm like, I'm a recovering caterer. I don't want to cater. I'm going to say I don't cater. And then I was like, hey, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I said, okay, I was making these tiny cookies when we were catering. I said, maybe I'll just focus on those. Okay, I'm going to go on the show. I'm going to tell people I don't cater. And I'm going to make these tiny cookies. And so, and that's what I did. And so for five years, I had this cookie business that I turned into a dessert business. And we just closed that at the end of January, but that's why I did it. Hey, Amanda. We're still here. Yeah, it, uh, we are still here. Notice I didn't use just your last name because we haven't, no, it hasn't, six months has not passed. So up next on this uh, best of series, we have Ted Allen, who everyone at this point knows from Chopped. He is the host of Chopped, Mm -hmm. um, so Ted Allen was originally famous from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Were you yes. a fan of this television program? I did watch a lot of this. Yeah. This was in a day, an age of reality TV where there weren't a ton of shows like this. So it was, I think, a forebear to a lot of what we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a great eclectic group making over people's lives. Yeah. So in this episode, he talks a lot about how that group was formed. Um it was five of them, right? It was five. I think it was five, five. of them. Yeah. Interestingly, Uh-oh. I was talking with someone who I will not name mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago 
very handsome gay man in the food world who had auditioned for the new version that they're making for Netflix yeah. right now. Yeah. He almost made the cut, but did not make the cut. He did not make it. Yeah. But I'm not surprised they, they auditioned him because he's very handsome. Anyone in the food world who knows handsome food media men, you can probably guess who I'm talking about. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Hey, email email us at upsell.eater.com. <laughs> your best guesses. Yeah, your best guess. Who you're... <laughs> but yeah, Ted Allen says that, actually... It's kind of unclear, but he says that what the producers did a good job of is they had some handsome people, some super handsome people, <laughs> and some people who actually knew what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> and when he says it, it's it's unclear. I think he's... he implies that he's the guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah. Another fun fact from this episode. Yeah. Uh, he confesses that he's seen Padma Lakshmi naked. Yeah. Which he sounds has. very exciting. Yeah. he's He was within two minutes of being in the studio. Talking about Naked Padma. Yeah, he was rhyming off Naked Padma, but also like fully, he was fully willing to rack his brain to see if he could dig up anyone else that he'd seen naked. (laughs) I think maybe Carson. But uh, yeah, Ted Allen started on Queer Eye, and he talks about how his different magazine journalism jobs and how he was a food critic and how they eventually led him to the Queer Eye audition, which is actually really interesting, the audition itself. He tells some fun stories from that. But first, a uh, huge announcement that is huge for me, at least. Uh, Amanda Clute, also Also big for me. Yeah, is about to read her first ever ad, and it is from one of my favorite sponsors, ZipRecruiter. Uh, well, Amanda, you do hire people. I do. You hire a fair amount of people, right? I hire a lot of people. I yeah. think we have about 70 people a year now. Holy cow. That's a lot of people. I'm sure sometimes it is not easy to find the perfect candidate. Recruiting is incredibly hard, I have to say. It is, probably eats it up is, a fair amount of your time. It is very hard. It takes up a lot of time. You spend a lot of time um, sifting through terrible candidates that I think are just applying so they can, I don't even know, like market off on a box or show unemployment that they're trying. So I have a lot of theories as to why I have what? so many spam resumes. Eater's a really strange place to like... I don't think it's just us. I think... Yeah, but we oh, get... Oh, you think they send them around all the time? Yeah, all yeah. And we get applicants that just are not even remotely connected to the industry. I just think if I'm if I'm punting uh, a job application to show unemployment, I'm just going to go straight Goldman. <laughs> not, not, not Eater. Yeah, I'm not going to mess. I'm not gonna... <laughs> it is weird, weird direction to go in. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it would be very convenient for you to have an online tool that uh, filtered all your applicants and organized them into one convenient setting, would it not? I would love that. Uh, And with ZipRecruiter, 80% of the jobs posted get qualified candidates in 24 hours, which... Seems like a good deal to me. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Upsell listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com eat. That's ZipRecruiter.com eat. Fantastic. So... I think it's time then to hear Ted Allen. The funny thing, actually, is that from watching Chopped and Chopped Jr., I don't really think you get to know me that well. I do a lot of counting and introducing and trying to pronounce difficult names from all over the world. Um, but there's the, you know, the chefs are the stars of the show. So it's fun for me to have a chance to do an interview like this because I can stretch out. and Maybe I'll even say something funny. Oh, can't wait. You're the star of our show. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so Chopped, I feel like actually more than any other food-related television program, it like permeates culture. Like people that, like relatives and stuff I have that don't 
follow food media or don't really, you know, aren't cooks or not huge like restaurant people, mm-hmm. they know about Chopped. They watch Chopped, and I just I'm kind of constantly impressed by how it's just it's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. Yeah, we're very fortunate and we're very uh, appreciative, and the network is supporting us big time and putting making more and more and more episodes than we ever have made. And I have a, I have a hypothesis about why I think it's so successful, which is that. It is a show in which cooking happens, but it's not a cooking show. Mm-hmm. It's a game show. It's a. It is a game show. It's a. Uh, or uh, I also sometimes liken it to a basketball game. Yeah. It has the intensity and the speed of a sport, and this is why so much of these. The, I think a good competitive show like ours makes more sense in prime time than say a standard sir show. As much as I love cooking shows and always have, it's just a much broader audience and yeah. people who don't ever cook. I can feel like there's it. a lot of little stories in every episode and that's kind of the thing that I feel it's like. It's like people that get adrenaline really, build up yeah. too though. It's like it's like tension release, tension release like every fourteen seconds. I think the editing is really, really, really good on our show. As an editor, I appreciate that. Oh, you are an editor. So you understand. It's, I mean, first of all, I don't know how you do it. Um, it's easier with words than TV, I think. I, I'm sure it is. But even then, uh, one episode of Chop takes 37 days to edit. No, it doesn't. Which makes me want to kill myself just thinking about Wait, it. Wait, is that a real number? Is that yes. you being hyperbolic? No, it's a real number. 37? I mean, how <laughs> is that even possible? But if you think about it, we have easily 13, 14 cameras each of which, uh, it's a 12-hour shoot day, which probably means what? I don't know, seven hours of tape times 13 cameras. We, there are four producers who sit up in the control room and log moments that they think are going to be significant in the show. It's, I don't, I, I'm with you. I think of it as a game show. But it also, ha- the, the only reality elements that it has is that producers don't know what are going to be the storylines until they happen. Right. Say somebody drops a steak on the floor, but then decides to plate it, which hasn't happened in a very long time. You know, you want to hope that you got a picture of that because we're not going to fake it. And that will obviously be a story. So up somewhere, somehow using computers or something, they, they log what moment in time and what camera got that shot. So how does that compare to your first foray into reality TV? <laughs> yeah, uh, Chopped is very, is very different from Queer Eye. I have n- seen far fewer of our cast members naked. Um, the, 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 well, really, just Carson was the only one that was r- r- routinely nude. Um, he seems like that sort. Yeah. He's, Drop you know, the pants, take off the shirt. He actually looks terrific nude, but... Um, <laughs> Not that I ever wanted to see that. Please go into more detail. I've actually also seen Padma, Padma Lakshmi naked and uh, when I was on Top Chef. Wow. And, you know, she's every bit as stunning as you'd think. Now, uh, for me, we were in a, sharing a dressing room uh, on location in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico for season three, I think it was, when Stephanie Izzard won and um, over Richard Blaze in a dramatic oh. sunrise moment. when <laughs> That show would shoot till four or five in the morning. It was Ridiculous, but uh, she was she was getting ready to take her dress off and change, and I said, "Oh, well, I'll just leave because I, I'll step out because that's a gentle, what a gentleman would do." And she said, "What? Are you repulsed by the sight of my nude body?" And I said, "Not at all." <laughs> that's and a I challenge. Have a, I have a mental picture that so many men would appreciate more. Um, incredibly beautiful woman. She's extraordinarily beautiful. She is best and hair ever. Talented. Mm-hmm. Cook and host and presenter. Yeah. But also very beautiful. Yes. Remarkable person. So to go back to Queer Eye, that's. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I, I who else have you seen naked? Thank God you're going <laughs> to. Thank God you edit this thing. Are those the only we, tune? Who else? That's a good question. As as an interviewer myself uh, on occasion, um, who, who all have you seen naked that was interesting? That's the only one I can tell you about. The only um, two I can tell you about. 
But, no, nobody else. But back to Queer Eye. So that was another like phenomenon, and I feel like I I must it have had some sort of the, the word queer. First yeah, kind of did. Like, yeah, in, like in a massive and monumental watershed kind of way. I remember when it came out, reading uncountable articles that were explaining to people what the word queer meant. I will never forget the arrival of the word queer when uh, it actually and the cast. What particularly myself didn't like the title. To me, queer I is queer was such a loaded word. This is back. I mean, queer nation was still uh, around. This is like two thousand three, two thousand four, right? Mm, yes, yeah. and queer was a, a word that had not been nearly as embraced as it has today, and was a very loaded political word. But I, but I came to understand, and I'll never forget when I the first time I watched Matt Lauer try to say queer the word queer. I mean, he kind of bungled it a little bit because it just wasn't a word we were comfortable someone like Matt Lauer wouldn't shouldn't be comfortable with that word but I think it has something to do with what caught people's attention yeah it was an act of reclamation I can't exactly explain how this connects the dots in my mind but I want to say that Queer Eye for the Straight Guy uh, largely influenced um, straight men somehow getting into a lot of the these things about like design and food and fashion um, I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Like- yeah, sure. I mean, I think Queer Eye, we were the first all-gay cast of any show that has ever been on American TV. Um, we, uh, I think the show was, I think, pretty brilliantly made for what it was. It had certainly pl- plenty of crass, crass commercialism in it uh, as well. But it also brought together two groups of people that just were never brought together. And over the over the subject matter of interior decorating and food and fashion, below that was burbling that sort of subtext. But the best episodes were the ones when, in in which the straight guy, as we called him affectionately, was <laughs> was visibly uncomfortable with us at the beginning, and that and then warmed up, and they always warmed up because it's a powerful thing to have five people who know something about those areas care about you and help set you up, aside from the fact that, of course, we give you a television, a giant screen TV and a sofa, which is awesome, <laughs> and paint your apartment really cool. Um, so there was, a, there was a power there. Let's, we have to remember that for all, whatever impact it had, that was such a flash in the pan. Queer Eye was hot for like a year. We made 99 episodes in Bravo, but it became the linchpin of what Bravo still is today. The president of Bravo used to say this all the time. She called it the Queer Eye Unified Theory of Bravo, <laughs> which was those are still the subject areas that they're interested in. Yeah, they just pulled different you know ideas out of it and kind of spun it off into these these like different trees of content, I feel like. But there was something, I think, really powerful about like what you were saying, Greg, that these things that maybe a certain sort of hyper-masculine macho dude of the early 2000s might have considered beneath him or, like, outside of his sphere. And then he was, you know, presented with five gay men, but also just, like, you are actual humans. And I think for a lot of these guys, I mean, watching it at home, it felt like this was, for those guys who would appear uncomfortable, it was the first time that they were having meaningful interactions with people that they knew were gay Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, they were like, okay, first of all, you are actual human beings with, like, feelings and thoughts and expertise and intelligence, and I respect you in these various ways. And then also, these things that I've been dismissing as way too feminine or stupid or dumb are actually going to help me get laid. Absolutely, which is absolutely was our goal, of course. Uh, and, and it suddenly becomes okay to say, dude, do you like the way these jeans look on me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that's awesome. I mean, I think it's great. God knows the retailers loved it. Uh, <laughs> Well, and I loved my category because it was absolutely limitless. I thought yeah. I had by far the best job. Oh, you did. You Carson's were food job. and wine? I was food and yeah. wine. 
So I could choose whatever. First of all, there was no. For some reason, those industries didn't seem to be coughing up product placement money at the time. So nobody bothered me to try to, you know, flack for some horrible product. Um, <laughs> Craft salad dressing will was, elevate your dinner date. <laughs> there was exactly one, and actually, that I did have to do, and it was fine. And I, I, I insisted on approving anything they were going to let me do anyway. Uh, it was Ranching Bull, Rancho Zabaco Dancing Bull Zinfandel, which is about a six-dollar bottle of wine in any grocery store. Um, and that was fine with me, but I mean, the, the it, poor Kyan had to sell Crest white strips like forty-seven times, um, and I didn't have to. I could talk, introduce somebody to the different varieties of champagne. I could show you how to break down a lobster. I could show you how to make fried chicken. I did all those things. Looking back on it now, I mean, it was uh, there are several things about the show I would have changed. Um, I would have put us in the same uniform for every episode, thus sparing us. We borrowed ten outfits per episode for us to wear, one to wear for the shooting of the show and one to wear for when we were hanging out in our loft afterwards. By the way, this is such ancient history, you might want to cut this because nobody who listens to your podcast has ever seen Queer Eye. I watched it religiously. You did, really? I did. I just feel like it was always on when you go over to somebody's apartment. Like, it, it, well, it was it was on because it was the only show advertisers wanted to buy on, on Bravo back then. Because it was such a phenomenon. Yeah, it was all they had. They had that and Cirque du Soleil, which in turn is why they ordered too many episodes of it and ran them burned us into the ground. It was like a comet instead of a, instead of a whatever lasts longer than a comet. Um, a planet, let's say. A sun. A sun. A sun. I have to say, the way it all worked out for me, and t Tom Felicia predicted, our design guy, Tom Felicia predicted that I was the one that would end up getting a gig on Food Network just because it translated well and because that network was there and established and was the home of all things food at the time. But it, I got really lucky the way it worked out, because when Queer Eye ended, I had already been invited to guest judge on both Top Chef on Bravo and Iron Chef America on Food Network, and neither network cared that I was doing those things simultaneously because I was just a judge in that role, and it wasn't a role that they, they didn't see me as a, you know, like a, a host or a real it family like member. It wasn't like talent in the same way that no, it's evolved I, into now. I'm just kind of curious about how you got into, I know that you have a journalism, uh, a background in food journalism, but what was the thing that kind of sparked that? Were you someone who was really into food, were you into cooking as a kid, were you into going to restaurants? Um, so I was doing regular magazine journalism, but also sort of tiptoeing into food, and I asked if I could audition to be one of the five or six critics that they had at the time, which is something I rarely mention these days because I work with lots of chefs. Um, but I found, and I got, I got the gig because I took it super seriously. And I'm to this day, super, very offended and put off by dining criticism that is flippant or cruel or unkind, unless a chef has really done something unspeakable, in which case they deserve it. But a Chicago magazine only wrote about restaurants that we thought were good. So that helps. Oh, and when you're once a month and you've got a limited number of physical print pages, you have to make your decisions. Exactly. And people want to hear about what they should do. Yeah, not what th they enthusiasm do. is super important in food writing. Yeah. And I, th I mean, and I also understand that a good takedown can be entertaining for people, but that's never really been where my heart lies. So I would come, I would, and since I was a junior critic, I was one of the new kid, I would be sent to restaurants that usually were okay. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't sending me to Charlie Trotter. Uh, but I found it in, in, intensely fascinating to go into a restaurant, be it high or low, and sincerely appraise what you thought of what they were trying, whether they were doing what they were promising for you. It's a totally different headspace than just being a standard diner, too. It definitely is. Okay. So you're in Chicago. 
and you're doing some writing for Esquire. And how does how does the where does the phone call come in for for Queer Eye? Or how did how did that those two worlds meet? You know, if there's one, I, I I like to talk to students once in a while. I used to talk to journalism classes once in a while, and I uh, the only thing I can I don't know if this is even helpful, but I'd like to advise people to keep your eyes open for weird opportunities, because every every job I've ever had was necessary for the job that I currently do. Um, I still interview people as a journalist all day. I interview those four chefs. I draw questions. I draw information out of them. I think I'm better at it than some TV producers are. Not ours. Ours are amazing. But they they spend two hours with them. I get them for in little 10-minute chunks. And I'm trying to get them to say things that are interesting, and just as you do all the time. Um, I got... So I was I was I had a contract with Esquire. I was regularly trying to come up with stuff to do for them, and my, so the magazine, of course, is based here. Uh, a friend called me and had seen a casting notice for Queer Eye, and I thought, well, I guess I could go try out for that. It it it'd be a write off. I'll spend two hundred bucks to fly out there. I'll crash on my editor's sofa in Hoboken, which I did, and I'll have something to laugh about later. Because um, something like 500 people auditioned for Queer Eye. Wow, that seems like a lot, like a big call for sort of an unknown, you know. Well, you know, it turns out that lots of people want to be on television. And I remember when Carson walked in the room, it was a conference room, a whole bunch of gay guys in this stuffed into this conference room. Carson walked into the room, he was wearing uh, Chanel sunglasses, this uh, a, a gauzy shirt, kind of along the lines of the pirate shirt on Seinfeld. Okay. Um, these sort of flowing... Ralph Lauren pants with big blue hibiscus flowers on them and um, slides, Gucci slides. And he threw a Louis Vuitton duffel bag into the, in the middle of the conference room table and said, I think it's adorable that any of you queens think you're going to get my part. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turns out, he was right. That's um, confidence. That's how you do it. That's how you make an entrance, huh? He, uh, man, he announced himself. And it turned out that Carson and I were the first two people that were chosen. They kept putting us in different combinations of five to see where the, who had chemistry. And these are two guys from Boston, Dave Collins and Dave Metzler. And to their credit, I think they cast us really, really well. Had they had it to do over again, they probably would have chosen five staggeringly handsome guys. Instead, what they did was they chose a couple handsome guys and then a bunch of guys who kind of knew something. Um, and I talked a good game. It turned out that the Esquire, I was talking about how every job I've ever had was necessary for the one I got, I have now. It turned out also that the producers were very enamored of Esquire magazine. It's a great magazine. But anyway, the the Queer Eye was all about teaching men how to be high class, how to dress well, how to cook, how to be worldly. Esquire's been doing that since 1933. So that also gave me a lot of cred with the producers and the fact that I am not quite as flamboyant as some of the uh, some other folks who were on Queer Eye and that I came from the Midwest. I think that was a bit of diversity that they wanted. You need um, a range of personalities. Yeah. Everyone needs their own viewer surrogate to yeah. attach themselves to. It's fun to look back on it now. Did you ever have a, I mean, was TV the goal ever? Like, you know, were you ever 15 and you were like, I'm going to be famous? I, I, I did, when I was 15, uh, heavily fantasize about becoming famous, but it was as a rock star. Oh. I'm a huge music nerd. Do you play any instruments? Yeah, I play very badly piano. I have a guitar. I can't say I really know how to play it. And I grew up playing drums and had a couple of bands back in the day. Uh, not bands that anybody would remember, but just in college. Uh but I know I had never been in a school play. I had no. Uh, it's really strange that how hard I tried to get the queer eye job. I interrupted a European vacation. I flew down from a vacation in Maine in a storm. I mean, I kept having these callbacks. They kept dragging me back for callbacks. Then um, it worked out. I mean, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, ultimately, because I 
at a time in my life when my partner and I kind of wanted to move to New York, suddenly television made it possible and comfortable, um, which, as anybody who lives here knows, is, not, is a lucky thing it's a, and a rare thing. Um, and now I never want to leave. So do you still cook? Do you have time uh, to cook? I love to cook. I, I'm one of those people who gets uncomfortable if too many days go by that I haven't been allowed to cook. And it's one of the things that's uh, I'm I, I'm constantly admonished by a certain husband of mine not to complain about my job. But one of the things <laughs> I love my job. It's great. But one of the things that is hard about it is for me is that it's it's a 12 hour shoot day. And so if we're shooting, we usually shoot four or five days a week that I only have about a four hour window before I have to be back in bed. And so I can't cook, and I don't really want to go out to dinner or anything because I'm trying to chill and go to bed really early, which I hate doing. Um, yeah, I love to cook. Ironically, when you consider where I work, I uh, am very much a slow food person. I like to braise things and cook things that take forever, and I'm, I don't even want a recipe that that resolves itself quickly because it's, I, I want to savor the experience. So you give yourself challenges, huh? And the lingering pleasure. Yeah. I just like to be in the kitchen with wine and music going and, and cook things that develop flavor slowly, like, uh, like, um, you know, soups and stews. It's all simple. What do you do in the summer when soups and stews are not? I might cook a pork shoulder over charcoal for 12 hours. Summer braises. Make pulled pork. Oh, that smell. Get those tomatoes from the box. And... I'm incredibly hungry right now. <laughs> right? Actually, and um, for my another thing we did for my birthday last summer is we we hired the guys from the Meat Hook to come out and do a barbecue for us, Brent Young and those guys. And they, I mean, they killed it. And the, it was a whole, my, as you might imagine, my, most of my friends are really into food. And I had some of the chop judges there, too, like Amanda Freitag and Chris Santos. And so everybody was really adventuresome mm-hmm. and into it. So the guys from the Meat Hook, come for listeners who don't know, it's a place in Brooklyn that's an amazing butcher place. They also have a really successful sandwich business, and they cater and they make their own sausages. And they they showed up with with smoked ducks and a, a beef tendon salad and all this stuff that a lot of people. It's not your ordinary food. Um, they also have. I love also that they have easily half of their butchers are women, and all of their butchers are you know like in their twenties and thirties, and they're really cool and they have tattoos and stuff. I'm not, as I said earlier, I'm not a trend person, but that's a trend that I can't, I can't even believe is happening is that the butcher is back and the butcher is 26. And this isn't only in New York city. No, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's unbelievable. The appreciation that people are having. My mom is obsessed with grass fed steak. She lives in Carmel, Indiana. It's a suburb of Indianapolis. She has a great butcher. Wow. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's, it's this whole pendulum swing away from like the easy processed shrink wrapped food that arose in the post-war era and like. It's it's weird to me that it's the butchers that are kind of the ones paving the way for everything else. But it's so obvious when you taste a grass-fed steak that's been recently cut by someone who actually knows what they're doing from a cat, like a cow that was not slaughtered seven years ago and kept in cold storage. Like you're like, oh no, this actually is supposed to taste incredible, mm-hmm. and then you don't want to go back. It's it's a great time to be a, a food lover. It really is. Thank you for listening to this week's Best Of, the Best Of TV. What a fun, entertaining episode. Love those guys. We will be back next week with something very special. It'll probably be us, Amanda and Dan. <laughs> just be us again. It'll just be yeah. Actually, yeah, next week's just going to be us talking about recruiting. No. <laughs> Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And uh, if you love us, tell someone how funny we are. And tell them the podcast is great, too. Don't just be like, hey, Amanda and Dan 
They're mm-hmm. so funny. And send an, e- an email to upsell at eater.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. I'm getting those emails now, so just send anything. Oh, good. Anything. Yeah, I just found out that Dan was left off that, that inbox, which yeah. is just really mean but hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so whoever sends the first one, I will remember Just forever. please say, dear AP Dan, I love you. <laughs> Um, Well, thanks so much, and have a great week. Thanks. The Eater Upsell is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and is recorded at Vox Media Studios in San Francisco in New York City. Your two hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy whose voice you hear every week, Greg Morbido. Our producer is AP Dan, more commonly known as Dan Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our executive producer is Maureen Janone. Our studio team is Miles Ewell and Paige Bethan. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person in this entire process, the one person without whom none of this would be possible, past, present, or future, is you, beautiful and brilliant listener. It's you. Thank you for everything you do. We love you.